Chapter 17 of Visions and Revisions by John Cooper Powis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Walt Whitman I want to approach this great soothsayer from the angle least of all profaned by popular verdicts. I mean from the angle of his poetry. We all know what a splendid heroic anarchist he was. We all know with what rude zest he gave himself up to that cosmic emotion to which in these days the world does respectful if distant reverence. We know his mania for the words in mass, for the words ensemble, democracy and libertad. We know his defiant celebrations of sex, of amorousness, of maternity, of that love of comrades which passeth the love of woman. We know the world-shaking effort he made, and to have made it at all, quite apart from its success, marks him a unique genius to write poetry about every mortal thing that exists, and to bring the whole breathing, palpable world into his gargantuan catalogues. It is absurd to grumble at these inventories of the round earth. They may not all move to Dorian flutes but they form a background like the list of kings in the bible and the list of ships in homer against which as against the great blank spaces of life itself the writing upon the wall may make itself visible what seems much less universally realized is the extraordinary genius for sheer poetry which this prophet of optimism possessed i agree that walt whitman's optimism is the only kind of that sort of thing that one can submit to without a blush. At least, it is not indecent bourgeois and ill-bred, like the fourth-hand Protestantism that Browning dishes up for the delectation of ethical societies. It is the optimism of a person who has seen the American Civil War. It is the optimism of a man who knows the Bowery and the Road and has had queer friends in his mortal pilgrimage. It is an interesting psychological point, this difference between the marching breast forward of Mrs. Browning's energetic husband and the taking to the open road of Whitman. In some curious way, the former gets upon one's nerves where the latter does not. Perhaps it is that the boisterous animal spirits which one appreciates in the open air become vulgar and irritating, when they are practised within the walls of a house. A satyr who stretches his hairy shanks in the open forest is a pleasant thing to see, but a gentleman with lavender-coloured gloves putting his feet on the chimney-piece is not so appealing. No doubt it is precisely for these domestic exercises that Mr. Chesterton, let us say, would have us love Browning. Well, it is a matter of taste. But it is not Walt Whitman's optimism that I want to speak. It is of his poetry. To grasp the full importance of what the great man did in this sphere, one has only to read modern libraries after Walt Whitman. Paul Fort, for instance, seems simply an eloquent prose writer. And none of them can get the trick of it. None of them. Somewhere once I heard a voice that approached it, a voice murmuring of those that sleep upon the wind and those that lie along in the rain cursing egypt but that voice went its way 
and for the rest what banalities what ineptitudes they make the mistake our modern free versifiers of thinking that art can be founded on the negation of form art can be founded on every other negation but not on that one never on that one certainly they have a right to experiment to invent if they can new forms but they must invent them they must not just arrange their lines to look like poetry and leave it at that walt whitman's new form of verse was as all such things must be as mr hardy's strange poetry for instance is a deliberate and laborious struggle ending in what is a struggle no more to express his own personality in a unique and recognisable manner this is the secret of all style and poetry and it is the absence of this labour of this premeditated concentration which leads to the curious result we see on all sides of us the fact namely that all young modern poets write alike they write alike and they are alike just as all men are like all other men and all women like all other women when without the art of clothing or the art of flesh and blood they lie down side by side in the free cemetery the old poetic forms will always have their place they can never grow old-fashioned any more than pisanello or el greco or botticelli or scopus or any ancient chinese painter can grow old-fashioned but when a modern artist or poet sets to work to create a new form let him remember what he is doing it is not the pastime of an hour this it is not the casual gesture of a mad iconoclast breaking classic statues into mud out of which to make goblins it is the fierce tenacious patient constructive work of a lifetime based upon a tremendous and overpowering vision such a vision walt whitman had and to such constant inspired labour he gave his life notwithstanding his talk about loafing and inviting his soul the free poetry of walt whitman obeys inflexible occult laws the laws commanded unto it by his own creative instinct we need as nietzsche says to learn the art of commands of this kind transvaluers of old values do not spend all their time sipping absinthe is it a secret then the magical unity of rhythm which walt whitman has conveyed to the words he uses those long plangent wailing lines broken by little gurgling gasps and sobs those sudden thrilling apostrophes and recognitions those far-drawn flute notes those resounding sea trumpets all such effects have their place in the great orchestral symphony he conducts take that little poem quite spoiled before the end by a horrible bit of democratic vulgarity which begins come i will build a continent indissoluble i will make the most splendid race the sun ever shone upon is it possible to miss the hidden spheric law which governs such a challenge take the poem which begins in the growth by the margins of pond waters do you not divine delicate reader the peculiar subtlety of the reference to the rank rain-drenched 
anonymous weeds which every day we pass on our walks in land a botanical name would have driven the magic of it quite away walt whitman more than anyone is able to convey to us that sense of the unclassified pell-mell of weeds and stones and rubble and wreckage of vast desolate spaces the spaces full of debris and litter which is most of all characteristic of your melancholy american landscape but which those who love england know where to find even among our trim gardens no one like walt whitman can convey to us the magical ugliness of certain aspects of nature the bleak stunted god-forsaken things the murky pools where the grey leaves fall the dead reeds where the wind whistles no sweet fairy tunes the unspeakable margins of murderous floods the tangled sea-drift scurfed with scum the black sea windrow of broken shells and dead fishes scales the roots of willow trees and moonlit places crying out for demon lovers the long moaning grass that grows outside the walls of prisons the leprous mosses that cover paupers graves the mountainous wastes and blighted marshlands which only unknown wild birds ever touch with their flying wings and of which madmen dream these are the things the ugly terrible things that this great optimist turns into poetry yo honk cries the wild goose as it crosses the midnight sky others may miss that mad tossed shadow that heart-breaking defiance but from amid the drift of leaves by the roadside this bearded faker of outcasts has caught its meaning has heard and given it its answer ah gentle and tender reader thou whose heart it may be has never cried all night for what it must not name did you think swinburne or byron were the poets of love perhaps you do not know that the only short story on the title page of which guy de maupassant found it in him to write that word as a story about the wild things we go out to kill walt whitman too does not confine his notion of love to normal human coquetries the most devastating love cry ever uttered except that of king david over his son is the cry this american poet dares to put into the heart of a wild bird from alabama that has lost its mate i wonder if critics have done justice to the incredible genius of this man who can find words for that aching of the soul we do not confess even to our dearest the sudden words he makes use of and certain connections awe us hush us confound us take our breath as some of shakespeare's do with their mysterious congruity has my reader ever read the little poem called tears and what purity in the truest deepest sense lies behind his pity for such tragic craving his understanding of what love-stricken banished ones feel i do not speak now of his happily amorous verses they have their place i speak of those desperate lines that come here and there throughout his work where with his huge titanic back set against the world wall 
and his wild-tossed beard streaming in the wind, he seems to hold open by main gigantic force that door of hope which fate and God and man and laws of nature are all endeavouring to close, and he holds it open. And it is open still. It is for this reason, let the profane hold their peace, that I do not hesitate to understand very clearly why he addresses a certain poem to the Lord Christ. Whether it be true or not that the pure in heart see God, it is certainly true that they have a power of saving us from God's law of cause and effect. According to this law, we all have our reward and reap what we have sown. But sometimes, like a deep-sea murmur, there rises from the poetry of Walt Whitman a protest that must be heard. Then it is that the tetrarchs of science forbid in vain that one should raise the dead. For the dead are raised up and come forth, even in the likeness wherein we loved them. If words, my friends, if the use of words in poetry can convey such intimations as these to such generations as ours, can anyone deny that Walt Whitman is a great poet? Deny it who may or will, there will always gather round him, as he predicted, out of city tenements and artist studios and factory shops and warehouses and bordellos, aye, and it may be, out of the purlieus of palaces themselves, a strange, mad, heart-broken company of life-defeated derelicts who come, not for cosmic emotion or democracy or anarchy or amorousness or even comradeship, but for that touch, that whisper, that word, that hand outstretched in the darkness which makes them know, against reason and argument and all evidence, that they may hope still, for the impossible is true. End of chapter 17